Have you heard what's happening in Calgary, Canada? Home to some of the world's best researchers and innovators in life sciences, Calgary is advancing healthcare solutions to solve global challenges. Calgary's dedication to the life sciences sector is evident in its labs, hospitals, schools, and the minds of its people. With its top institutions producing internationally recognized research and more than 110 life science companies backed by a highly skilled pool of talent, the life sciences sector is accelerating innovation in Calgary. If you're a bright mind or a bright company, Calgary is just the place for you. Take a closer look at calgarylifesciences.com. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. of smartphones, low-cost sensors, and ubiquitous connectivity is changing the way researchers think about recruiting, monitoring, and interacting with participants in biomedical research. The use of evolving technology is not just eliminating geographic barriers to participation, but also enabling the collection of new types of data. The Scripps Research Digital Trials Center is pioneering the use of digital health technologies to re-engineer the way studies are conducted. We spoke to Edward Ramos, Director of Digital Clinical Trials for Scripps Research Digital Trials Center, about how digital health technology is transforming biomedical research, how it's changing what is possible, and some of the ongoing research projects the center is conducting. Ed, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. We're going to talk about digital clinical trials, the work of the Scripps Research Digital Trials Center, and how this is not only changing the way studies are being conducted, but expanding what's possible. There's been a lot of interest in decentralized clinical trials, though this predates the pandemic. That seems to have accelerated the move toward these what effect did COVID-19 have on decentralized clinical trials? Yeah, so uh, accelerated, I think, is a great word for it. Um, this is something that we have been thinking about as a model for some times uh, here at Scripps Research. Uh, Eric Topol and the team in our digital medicine group um, have had already several years uh, under their belt uh, exploring and conceptualizing and ultimately deploying uh, some of the first digital research studies and digital clinical trials. So when COVID came around, uh, we were absolutely prepared to put this model to the test uh, because, uh, well, we, we kind of had to. Uh, there was no path towards uh, a traditional model in terms of bringing individuals into a brick and mortar site. Uh, we absolutely wanted to um, have the ability to scale rapidly 
and uh, absolutely wanted to have the ability to have our research studies be open and accessible to all. As you think about the obstacles that have been in place, what have been the constraints? Have they been regulatory, technologic, or, or cultural with regards to biopharmaceutical companies and clinical trial investigators? Yeah, I, I think the answer is a, a big yes across the board there. And I can step through a, a couple of examples um, with respect to uh, cultural, you know, we're, we're now leveraging some really exciting digital health technologies, but obviously with that comes some unique aspects of risk that we may not necessarily have had to dealt with in the past, whether it's a type of data that's being collected uh, for example, GPS, uh, so getting very specific location data, uh, or just even having things being done at the participant's home uh, is a potential for uh, some kind of exposure to their uh, participation in a given research study, just even by virtue of a box being mailed to them from Scripps Research, uh, potentially raising eyebrows. So a lot of things like that had to be considered as we shifted more to this model. On the regulatory side, you know, the FDA is uh, increasing their dialogue around how to use digital endpoints in review uh, or, or as use as supporting material and review of new therapeutics uh, and, and new medicines, uh, especially in the context of clinical trials. Uh, and so while it's exciting to be in this burgeoning field, uh, the newness and novelty of it absolutely introduces some speed bumps along the way as folks kind of adjust to what this new paradigm could bring to the table. In the rare disease world in particular, because of the geographic dispersity of patients and the difficulty they may have traveling to a clinical trial site, there's been a, a great willingness to embrace decentralized clinical trials. In general, though, how does industry view these? I think the excitement, um, the kind of paint the, the positive aspect of the picture, it really gives them another tool in the toolbox in terms of being able to describe, um, for example, potential efficacy of a new therapeutic. And the excitement is really derived from the fact that a lot of these technologies now provide data in more of a continuous context uh, compared to something that's episodic. Uh, so take, for example, if you're looking at a skin condition in which uh, the, the itchiness of it as described by the participant uh, may only be done you know, in the uh, two week cadence or one month cadence that they're visiting the brick and mortar clinic site to kind of describe what they've been feeling. Um, we have a situation now of being able to use digital health technologies that uh, can monitor hand movements and use, uh, you know, the gyroscope uh, within a wrist-worn wearable uh, that could potentially tease out the actual physical movement of itching and give us uh, more continuous data, more real-time data uh, that can be extremely advantageous in terms of being able to describe uh, the impact of a particular disease uh, condition, uh, as well as the potential treatment uh, with respect to that disease. The FDA seemed to 
take steps early in the pandemic to facilitate these types of trials and encourage decentralized clinical trials. Where is the agency on its thinking? And does the industry need greater clarity to make better use of this approach? So I think that this use of digital endpoints being part of the process is absolutely being explored by the FDA. Uh, I clearly don't speak for them, but I can certainly imagine some of the challenges that they're going through from a regulatory perspective. And that could include, we're now putting the data collection to a certain extent in the hands of the participant. Uh, So that means that the standardization of collection uh, could potentially be an issue. And so much of what the FDA kind of formulaically looks at with respect to evaluating uh, and reviewing diagnostics and therapeutics are around the validation uh, associated with how these measures and data are collected. And so the shift of this really being more Uh, uh, from a a DIY perspective of the participant really carrying the burden of this data collection in the case of of more active data collection is something that that needs to be discussed and considered. Uh, I don't think it's a a showstopper in in any way. I think it's just another opportunity for discourse and dialogue in terms of how we approach this new model and new method. Uh, So to me, it's exciting, but I absolutely do recognize uh, that there are some regulatory lenses that need to step through this as well. What's the case in a post-pandemic world for decentralized clinical trials? What benefits do they provide? So I think um, one of the exciting things for me is this potentially fosters immediate change at the participant level. And I'll I'll give you a specific example with uh, consent from my mom who participated in in one of our studies. Um, She is struggling with being able to control her her blood sugar. Uh, The study that that she enrolled in uh, as a consented participant made use of a continuous glucose monitor, uh, a device that does exactly as its name. It it provides a visualization of your blood glucose in real time. And for somebody that's trying to figure out, oh, is it bread that's driving my glycemic response spikes? Is it uh, the fact that I didn't get to, to exercise this morning? Um, is it, you know, a, a, a other particular context as an individual, she felt extremely empowered uh, to be able to uh, kind of design and designate her own experiment, knowing that she has access to this information. Um, and uh, it was something that was able to directly um, affect her, her behavior. Uh, now, that's obviously not going to be the case for every modality that we leverage, uh, but it is a good window into uh, what the empowerment actually looks like at the participant level. And so this uh, world of decentralized clinical trials uh, not only provides this level of transparency to participants, the other is the actual reach of participants. So uh, there are significant um, burdens that need to be recognized through the traditional model. 
you know, how, will a person have to take a day off to travel to the clinic site? Uh, how will they get there? How will they pay for transportation? Um, and how often will they have to do it? Shifting that to being able to participate in a cutting edge, innovative research study from the comfort of their own home, I think is uh, an added boon. Uh, and the fact that that can translate into really reaching anyone anywhere is uh, absolutely what we get excited about as a research team. I, I've seen traditional clinical trials screwed up because site personnel have used different methods for measuring things. I'm wondering if there are issues that have come up in terms of the experience with digital clinical trials or whether that gets around that type of a problem. So I think it's, it's a different framing. So take, uh, you know, a fitness tracker, which are seemingly ubiquitous, uh, certainly more so now than just even in the past five years and a something simple as capture of physical activity as measured by steps um, that even within a given company's line of devices can vary greatly. Uh, and certainly from device to device. Uh, so the kind of initial entry of this was, ah, oh, steps doesn't mean a thing because there's so much variability in terms of how it's captured. But what we've recognized is it, it not trying to force ourselves past those limitations, but just understand the context. And for us, the context is what we're most interested in in many cases is just the Delta, the changes that we see within a given individual. So while they may not, while the 10,000 step uh, recorded on their wearable may not be precise, uh, we do know that if we see that number over a certain period of time that we can establish some level of baseline. And then when the participant deviates from that baseline, we're able to recognize that with some of our statistical modeling and the data analytic approaches that we've established. So it's really about recognizing the limitations, uh, but then also recognizing that there are still uh, a lot to be mined in terms of uh, analysis and uh, the ability to uh, truly understand um, what these data points mean uh, in the appropriate context. One of the things that's compelling to me about the use of digital technology in clinical studies is not just that they enable a decentralized approach, but they enable new ways to capture data and new types of data by not just bringing the trial to the patient, but observing people in their daily lives. In that regard, the center has been involved in a number of studies, and I wanted to talk to you about a few of those, but in general, how does the technology change the way researchers think about the type of data they can collect? I think the exciting thing for me, for our research team, the way that we view this is the real world evidence uh, aspect of it, um, where you're, say, for example, interested in uh, sleep uh, health-related metrics and the traditional model being bringing individuals into a sleep clinic and hooking them up to all these different machines and potentially waking them up every two to three hours to do some level of assessment. 
There is value in that, absolutely. Uh, and there are some gold standard metrics that can be gleaned from that type of approach. But when you're able to get at some level of similar data uh, or other relevant data, but in the context of the real world experience of an individual, uh, I think that contextual information as significant amount of value in terms of how you're interpreting uh, the impact of, of your analyses uh, based on how the data were, were collected. So for us, this the real world evidence, uh, the ability to kind of uh, uh, step away from a clinic setting that may not necessarily reflect a given individual's uh, everyday experiences uh, is, is also an important component to digital research uh, studies. Um, and the ability also then to collect this data uh, in real time, near continuously in, in many cases is also an, an added benefit uh, and something that we try to leverage quite a bit in our study designs. And what do you have to do to validate data when you go about collecting it in new ways? So there is a, a number of things that, that we consider. And again, this is kind of similar to one of your earlier questions around what are uh, some of the new uh, concerns and challenges that arise with respect to digital research studies. So again, by, by way of example, um, there are a number of things that you can do just leveraging a traditional smartphone, for example. So the lens, uh, the camera lens on a smartphone uh, can be used for uh, measuring some level of cardiorespiratory fitness. Um, but we also have to recognize that as you're developing uh, a, a study around that kind of design, and this is actually a, a real world example from our colleagues that we collaborated with over at SAGE, that the validation now has to fall in the context of recognizing that there are gonna be obviously different individuals uh, being exposed to this activity with different skin tones, skin colors. How does that affect the camera's ability to, um, uh, to, to draw on the same types of of analysis, uh, there's also the just ubiquity in smartphones and variety in different types and makes and models. And uh, so there's a technical uh, validation that is strongly associated, in, at least in this example, with uh, our need to validate uh, the ability to have diverse set of participants be a part of our research efforts. Um, and so it's exciting for us to identify these challenges, work through them, but absolutely there are a number of different validation strategies uh, that we need to recognize and, and most certainly approach before launching into an effort. Well, walk us through some of the studies that are being conducted by the Digital Trials Center. I'd like to start with the DETECT study, which what is it and what's that about? Yeah, so as we were forming uh, the center at Scripps Research, um, we 
had were just coming on the heels of the team publishing papers uh, leveraging data from Fitbit. Uh, and basically the conclusions were rooted in being able to leverage um, analysis of resting heart rate and its association with influenza uh, and influenza-like illness at a population level. Uh, so basically we were excited early on, literally in January of 2020, uh, recognizing that we have this potential model for a digital signal um, in, with respect to some level of uh, public health surveillance. Soon after the COVID-19 pandemic washed the shores uh, here to the United States, and there was just so many positive things in terms of applying our digital research study model uh, to quickly jump into the fight uh, against this pandemic. And so for us, it meant leveraging this preliminary data that we had established and seeing if the biometric signals that are captured by a off-the-shelf uh, fitness tracker like a Fitbit or a Garmin or an Apple Watch can those signals be used for some level of early detection of COVID-19? The team ended up uh, publishing later that year, again, just being able to scale to tens of thousands of participants within months, uh, collect the data, analyze it in an observational way, and then publish a statistical model that showed our level of um, probability in being able to, to do this kind of early detection of COVID-19 was just an enormous use case for us. And uh, we believe a significant contributor to kind of advancing um, our, uh, our ability to understand the virus and potential tools to, to fight against it. Since then, we've continued to leverage this same kind of approach in analyzing the data um, and in the most recent case over the summer, we published efforts that showed our ability to, again, profile a digital signal with respect to COVID. But in this case, it was really looking at long COVID. So what we saw was resting heart rate, for example, shooting up um, in a kind of tachycardia, as it's known, um, really rising above the participant's baseline but then dipping uh, as the infection um, continued on in terms of number of days. Uh, the expectation was that it would eventually level back off um, at baseline. But what we saw was resting heart rate again rise above baseline, but then persist above baseline for that participant for uh, an extended period of time on the order of two to three months. Um, so now we have this digital signal that not only could inform us with some level of predictability of COVID-19 onset infection, but also show what the potential impacts were, at least at the level of resting heart rate over a period of significant months uh, after, after infection. And these just were just tremendous use cases for us, not only in our digital research study model, uh, but obviously exciting that we were able to contribute to uh, the understanding of the current pandemic. We're heading into flu season. I, I wonder if this would have utility for flu. And 
If so, would there be any way to distinguish between COVID and flu during this winter? Yeah, it's a great question and uh, something that the team recognized early on, especially because a lot of the early uh, research and data was rooted in influenza and influenza-like illness. Um, And this is the exciting aspect of this is that we can build out a very lightweight uh, platform for participants, uh, meaning that the registration and onboarding and consent process can really be done in a matter of minutes. And uh, as you consent and then authorize sharing of your wearable data, uh, you're effectively enrolled in the study um, and notified uh, to um, share any kind of um, symptoms uh, as you're feeling sick uh, so that the team can record that and and correlate that with the uh, biometric data that we're collecting. Um, So the, that, lightweight kind of platform approach then allows us to build on it and take it into different directions. So to your question, absolutely, we're thinking about what a potential just upper respiratory viral infection uh, surveillance platform could look like and how can we tease out the signals between a COVID-19 and a flu and potentially other respiratory infections. Uh, It's just, again, fascinating to me that this this can all uh, potentially be done uh, at the very least, certainly catalyzed by uh, a fitness tracker that, again, uh, many have, have access to. You're also conducting the PROGRESS study. What's that and how does it work? So PROGRESS is a little bit different from our model of kind of coming out of the gate with a lightweight effort. Uh, PROGRESS, we jumped very deep into answering a very specific question. Um, So it stands for Prediction of Glycemic Response Study. So we're interested in profiling how different nutritional intake impacts an individual's blood sugar response um, with the added context of looking at those profiles in individuals with type 2 diabetes uh, compared with those individuals that have not been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. It's a pilot of about a thousand individuals that really is looking at a significant layering of data to build out these profiles. So in addition to the continuous glucose monitor that I had mentioned earlier, that is uh, worn by the participant for 10 days while they're logging meals, they're also asked to wear a a, a Fitbit um, fitness tracker. Um, And prior to that, they... Uh, will have consented to providing biosamples that will allow for some level of uh, genomic analysis, uh, analysis into their uh, microbiome um, with respect to stool samples that are collected, as well as validation of their HbA1c or their blood sugar levels. Um, Again, all done and self-administered by the participant at home through various different kits that facilitate collection of these biosamples. So at the end of the day, progress allows to look at this tremendous uh, amount of layering of multimodal data and trying to get at what, uh, what are the primary drivers to the different glycemic response profiles that we see based on the type of nutrition um, that uh, is potentially impacting uh, those responses. And so Uh, What you could imagine potentially seeing come out on the end is uh, 
um, perhaps uh, exercise and uh, amount of carbohydrates means more in terms of impact for glycemic response for an individual that's a diabetic versus someone who's not. Uh, or we see that there's a significant variety in variability rather in glycemic response uh, based on different types of nutritional intake. Or it could be, you know, carbohydrates with some ratio of, of proteins and fats that's really driving not only the size of the spike, but then also the amount of time it takes for your blood sugar to return to your baseline. And so uh, exciting from a variety of different perspectives. But again, as I mentioned in my earlier example, the, the transparency of our platform and the way that we do these study designs really gives the participant a direct window into the type of data that we're collecting. Um, and we take that to heart because I think for as much as that we're pulling from the participant, we always feel like we want to push something back out to them. So there needs to be a return of value, uh, a return of information. Uh, we take seriously our mantra of participants being partners in our efforts. Uh, and so these are, you know, all, all of the exciting things that our teams uh, really don't view as challenges. <laughs> they're, they're just... Uh, fun new projects that, that they get to think of uh, cool solutions for. Um, and it's exciting that we get to deploy this in the context in which we're looking at trying to solve some, some pretty significant public health issues. The last study I wanted to ask you about was your Power Mom study, a first of its kind healthy pregnancy study. What is that and how does it work? So Power Mom uh, is actually a bit of a continuation or of um, the same study that was released uh, and implemented a few years back. Uh, but now, given all that we've learned, some of the new technologies that we have access to, Power Mom is really meant to be a platform that allows pregnant people to sign up throughout their pregnancy and uh, as well as some additional time uh, in the postpartum period uh, to really capture various aspects of, uh, of their maternal health. And this is done through um, participant reported outcomes, meaning that they provide uh, survey level data. Uh, again, they have an opportunity to share any kind of digital health technology data that uh, potentially is, is being leveraged as a sensor or as a wearable. Um, but more importantly, I would say that PowerMom provides a platform uh, for our team to really investigate the impact of health disparities. Um, so one of the kind of primary drivers is uh, looking at um, uh, potential issues of structural racism and discrimination between a pregnant person and their relationship with their uh, healthcare provider team. Um, what impact does that have uh, not only on their health, but the health of their newborn? Um, how, how, does, how do their life experiences potentially affect the outcome of, uh, of their newborn's health? And the reason why we're exploring this is just kind of the, the 
statistic that continues to, to shake my head in terms of uh, maternal mortality rates in the United States for the amount of money that we spend as a country in our healthcare uh, and the amount of resources that we have access to, uh, the mortality rate just really should give everyone pause. Uh, and so Power Mom is a passion project for every single person on that team. Uh, the primary investigator, uh, Dr. Lachey Ajayi, um, is a, just an absolute perfect uh, spokesperson, researcher, scientist, clinician to really lead this effort in addition to being an amazing mom uh, and uh, 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 having given birth to her, her second child uh, earlier uh, in the pandemic um, just brings a tremendous amount of lived experience as well as professional experience uh, to this particular effort. Power Mom um, you know, is, is also uh, kind of harkens back to our detect launch in terms of being a lightweight, uh, kind of low burden effort for participants to enroll with the opportunity to build on this platform to ask deeper questions in the future, whether that means going a little bit further down the postpartum world or uh, providing uh, certain types of digital health technologies to monitor, for example, blood pressure with respect to uh, preeclampsia uh, there's just a tremendous amount that we can continue to build on uh, as we launch and kind of step through uh, Power Mom as uh, in this uh, 2.0 version uh, that we, we are just getting off the ground. As you think about these and other studies, how do you think digital technology has the potential to transform biomedical research? You know, I think uh, Dr. Topol put it put it well in terms of really viewing this as, a, as an opportunity to reboot clinical trials. And the rebooting process here means that we can expand access. So again, uh, it truly is a mantra. It truly is something that we say often, and that is anyone, anywhere. How can we design these studies and leverage all of these amazing technologies to allow for anyone to have access to participate um, really anywhere geographically across the country. Um, I think I've given a couple examples in terms of how it also can potentially remove barriers. So for all of the information that we're asking a participant to share, uh, we wanna have an opportunity for them to recognize and understand how we're leveraging and utilizing that information. Not a month from now, three years from now, five years from now in some uh, scientific technical publication, uh, but as they're proceeding through the study. Um, and that kind of transparency, I think is needed. Uh, that is what's truly going to bridge the, what is often a divide between the participant and the study team. Uh, I think the opportunity also to shift from observational study to something more interventional is of significant um, excitement for us. So I'll kind of bring this full circle to one of our first efforts that was launched, which was M-STOPS. Um, this was an effort that uh, really leveraged a, a wearable sensor uh, that was able to detect uh, AFib, you know, a, a heart rhythm disorder. 
that was known to potentially lead to stroke. Uh, this was done um, in the order of thousands of participants and absolutely uh, was a success in terms of identifying those individuals with AFib uh, and interventional in the sense of um, uh, providing and sharing that information with them so that they could seek the appropriate care. Uh, it's really that kind of evolution that we wanna see for all of our efforts. Uh, it's one thing to kind of sit back and identify cool new statistical models that could potentially be trained into uh, you know, machine learned algorithms, but the ability to potentially change an individual's behavior or provide some level of information that makes them uh, have more informed decisions in their own personal health and well-being uh, is absolutely really what, what drives us um, as a research team. And what do you think all this will do in terms of enabling or elevating the use of real world evidence? Hopefully, you know, and it's certainly not just us that's driving this effort. There are, has been a significant surge in private sector companies, uh, their nonprofit academic groups that are pushing uh, this philosophy of decentralizing trials and democratizing research. Um, but I think with respect to real world evidence, um, I think this notion of stepping away from just a snapshot capture is well illustrated by kind of the, the iceberg metaphor, where previously we were seeing just the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, episodic data, recognizing now that there is a significant amount below uh, uh, sea level in terms of additional continuous data that can really paint a more robust um, and accurate image uh, with respect to the data uh, and the context in which we're collecting it. I think real world evidence, the ability to put it in that context is, is really what's gonna start separating us uh, from some of the limitations we've had in the past in terms of the types of questions that we can ask and answer. Ed Ramos, Director of Digital Clinical Trials for Scripps Research Digital Trial Center. Ed, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. It was a, a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.